swear I'm going to be dancing to that music. I really, really am like it. Welcome, everyone, on this first Sunday in the month of February. We're so glad you're joining us, whether it's online or at one of our locations. We're glad you're here. Well, as many of you know, we kicked off a brand new series last weekend from the book of Hebrews. It's called Better Than All the Rest, and we're exploring the message that God has for us in this bridge book called Hebrews. Now, in our limited time, we can't cover every verse in the book, but we are going to touch on some of the major themes and highlights. And my goal is that we'd walk away with a richer and deeper appreciation for all the benefits we have as a part of this new covenant in Jesus Christ. Now, to understand the book of Hebrews, probably as much as any book in the New Testament, it really helps to understand the Old Testament. I can say without hesitancy, the better you understand the Old Testament, the easier time you're gonna have grasping the message from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is really like a sermon uh, in fact, he calls it this exhortation in chapter 13 that he's written to them briefly. But it assumes, it assumes a lot of knowledge of the Old Testament. So, since many of us don't have a rich background in the Old Testament, before we dive into today's message, and we'll be looking at some scripture from Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4, I want us to take a little time to talk about something scripture calls types, types, or biblical typology. Now listen, you will miss a good deal of what God wants to say to you as a Christian if you don't understand this thing called biblical typology. So here's my own definition of it, of what a type is. You'll find other similar definitions in all kinds of places, but this is the definition I have been using for many years, a type is a person, place, thing, or event in the Old Testament that foreshadows or prefigures, that is, it points to it, it corresponds to a person, place, thing, or event in the New Testament. Now, let's leave that definition up there for a while. That is called a type. And there are many types in the Bible, especially in the Exodus story, as the Israelites traveled from Egypt on their journey to the promised land that God was going to give them. So let me give you a few of them because they're really super important in understanding not just Hebrews, but many passages in the New Testament. For instance, Egypt itself is a type of sin and bondage. So if you come out of Egypt, it's like you're You've been liberated from this life of bondage to sin, and now you're on this glorious new journey, walking with God toward the promised land. Going through the Red Sea was a type of water baptism. Paul speaks of it metaphorically in that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's look at just a few verses there. He says, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. And catch this part. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
So he's saying there that passing through the Red Sea for them was sort of equivalent to our water baptism. They had left their old master, Pharaoh, behind. Pharaoh, by the way, is sort of a type of Satan. And now they're on this spiritual journey with Christ into this life that God wants for them, a life of abundance in all kinds of ways. And that's what rep baptism represents for us. Dying to our old master, Satan. By the way, early baptismal confession, I mean, still today, people in their baptismal confession would often renounce Satan. That was powerful. Because it's saying like, I've got a new master now as I make my way to this new life and live a whole new life with Christ. By the way, the person, place, thing, or event in the Old Testament is called the type, but now get this part, the thing it corresponds to in the new is called the anti-type. Now, we usually think of the prefix anti as meaning against. That's not what it means here. These things aren't against one another. But when we say an anti-type, it's talking about what it corresponds to. So going through the Red Sea would be the type. Believer's baptism would be the anti-type, okay? Let's go on. Verse three, they all ate the same spiritual food. Now, what is that referring to? It's talking about the manna God fed them in the wilderness. And again, manna is the type. And the fulfillment of that, the anti-type, is Christ as he nourishes us through his word. When Jesus was in conversation with the Pharisees, you may remember, he was talking to them about how God had fed their forefathers in the wilderness with manna, and he said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but I am the bread of life. That, that was really a picture of me. We go on here in verse four, the apostle Paul writing says, and they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. You remember on at least two occasions, water came from a rock and quenched the thirst of the people. And here Paul says that rock was Christ. Now, we could go on and on with this today and take a lot of time. We won't, but I, I think you're getting the idea of types and anti-types. A person, place, thing, or event in the Old Testament that foreshadows or prefigures. It corresponds to a person, place, thing, or event in the New Testament. And Paul goes on to say there in verse six, now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. The word translated there, examples, is the Greek word tupos. It's literally the word we get type from. And that word tupos appears 15 times in the New Testament. But most Bible scholars would say that there are way more than 15 types in the Bible, and I would heartily agree with that. Now, one caution before we move on here. It's been my experience through many years now that when, when, when Christ followers first hear about biblical typology, they get really excited. And I think that's cool because I think it is exciting. God has put this in the Bible for a reason. 
but let's be careful and not become what I call type happy, okay? Some people, they get a hold of this, and they think, wow, this is the best thing since sliced bread, and suddenly they're imagining all kinds of types that aren't really there. And it gets a little bit ridiculous after a while. So let's be careful with that, not to superimpose or imagine types that aren't really there. But whenever the Bible says this is a type, two posts, or when it says this represents such and such from the Old Testament, then we can be sure that is a type and it can really be instructive for us in our Christian life. Now, why am I telling you all this? Why is this relevant? Because if you're gonna understand today's passage that we're about to look at, you need to understand the biblical story that underlies it and that will help illustrate it. You see, they were on their journey out of Egypt, God's people, the Israelites, into this land called Canaan or the promised land. Those are the same thing. And I wanna warn you today, this really gets personal. It's not just a Bible story to kind of expand the brain. It really gets down to where we live. So the promised land in Scripture, also known as Canaan, those are synonymous, it does not represent heaven. That's important to understand. Now, I know that our poets and many of our songwriters throughout the ages have pictured it that way and taught us to believe that that's what it means. But that's not really what the typology indicates. You see, we're not gonna fight wars in heaven as Israel did in Canaan. And we're not gonna deliberately disobey the Lord as Achan did in Canaan, in the promised land. And we're not gonna exercise poor judgment in heaven as Joshua did in Canaan. Now, now don't get me wrong, folks. The Bible does declare, thank God, there is a glorious heaven awaiting those who are in Christ and who are trusting him alone for their salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Thank God for that. But the promised land in biblical typology represents something different than heaven. It represents a fruitful, abundant life with Christ right now. It's something that we actually can experience here on earth as we learn to rest in all the sufficiency of God and experience the life that he designed us to live. And hey, is that the life you want? I mean, that's the life I want, amen? I want that abundant life. So hey, why don't you just, even if they're wearing a mask, whether they're wearing a mask or not, would you kind of look at your closest neighbor, wherever they are right now, kind of point at them, do this, please, and say, I want the abundant life. Would you do that right now? Say it out loud. I want the abundant life. Smile and wave at them. They'll, they'll be glad you're there. That's good. I want that life too. I want the abundant life. Now, watch this. For the Israelites, their literal walk from Egypt to Canaan took them to the promised land. For us today, it's gonna be our spiritual walk. Do you know what I mean by that? When somebody as a Christian says, how's your walk going? They don't mean, what's your stride like? They mean, how's your prayer life? How's your Bible study? 
Uh, what's your life of discipleship looking like these days? How much are you pressing into God? Because that's what's gonna take us to the promised land. God wants that for us. But guess what? A funny thing happened on the way to the promised land. And the people got sidetracked and they started wandering in the wilderness. Now, according to Deuteronomy chapter one, verse two, it literally says that the journey should have taken 11 days. That's how long the walk should have taken. But it took them a whole lot longer than that. Let's imagine the journey, the distance they had to go is a little bit longer than from Buffalo to Albany going on I-90. I thought I'd localize this to help us grasp it a little bit, okay? It's a little bit longer than that, but the distance is pretty close. So think of it like that. It's like Buffalo is Egypt. Now, that's not a diss on Buffalo. I love Buffalo. All you Buffalonians out there loved you. Had a great time living in Buffalo back in the late 80s. Love the city. And it's like the capital district or Albany is the promised land. Now, we all know that's not true, right? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we know that's not true. It doesn't really deserve that designation, but it's a cool place to live, and I'm glad to be living here. So just imagine a, people, a group of people leaving Buffalo, making their way east toward the promised land of the capital district, and somebody says, wow, they've reached Rochester. Oh, they're getting closer. to going through Herkimer now. Oh, Yikes, they're into Schenectady. It's taken them 40 stinking years to make this journey. Folks, that's slow. If you do the math, I think that comes out to about two to 300 yards a day. If you did the math, that's how long the journey took them. And guess what? A funny thing can happen on our way to the promised land as well. If you've been a Christ follower very long, you know this is true. You know that life doesn't always go the way you had hoped or planned, amen? A marriage doesn't always go the way you had hoped or planned. I mean, parenting doesn't always go the way you had hoped or planned. Careers don't always go the way you had hoped or planned, so if we're not careful, the Christ-following life can feel more like an exercise in frustration and futility than like the abundant life that Jesus wants us to live. Hey, has that ever happened to you? I mean, do you ever wonder, why am I not making more progress here? I mean, I left Buffalo, but I'm stuck somewhere here in the in-between. There's so much growing I want to, but why is it taking so long? Why does it feel like it's two steps forward and three steps back? I should have been in Albany by, by now, but man, I'm stuck somewhere back here in Utica. And today's passage is going to give us some real insight into that. So let's read about their experience. I'm going to start here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, and then let's quickly learn from their lessons, from their experience as we apply this to us so that we don't get stuck in the proverbial wilderness for 40 years. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness 
where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the assurance of our salvation firm until the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now let's look at chapter four. Therefore let us fear. That shocks you, doesn't it? Therefore let us fear lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united with faith. Catch that part. It says right here in verse two, it was not united by faith in those who heard. So I want to make three declarations today as we apply this to our lives. Declaration number one, and I want to tell you, it gets real personal. Coming out of Egypt is only a means to an end. It's not the end of all God has for us. Now, I get the title of today's message from one of my favorite verses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 23. Get a load of what this says, okay? Great chapter, by the way. The whole chapter is amazing. But it says, he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. I love that phrase. Did you catch it? It's today's title. He brought us out to bring us in. He brought us out to bring us in. To put it differently, he did not bring us out to leave us halfway, somewhere lost in the desert, wandering, frustrated in futility. He brought us out to bring us in. The reason God brought them out of Egypt was not just to get their slave masters off their back, although that's a wonderful thing. It was not just to make life easier for them, it was to take them into a land flowing with milk and honey. That represents abundance. It was a life where they be, would become all God intended them to be. What did God intend them to be? According to Isaiah, a light to the nations. According to Genesis 12, 3, they would be a blessing to all the people groups of the earth. In other words, God's whole intention was that they would represent him well. And when people looked at them, they would get a greater sense, a proper sense of who God really is. 
That's what it means, by the way, to glorify God and represent him well. That's why God saved them from Egypt. Now, personal. Why did God save you? I'll bet if I sat down with vast majority of people and said, why did God save you? I think they would give an answer something like this, to keep me out of hell and so I could go to heaven. I think that would be the answer. I want you to know that's a wonderful benefit of our relationship with God, but I'm suggesting to you that the main purpose of God saving you was to bring you into a deep and mature relationship with God, a life of discipleship, where you're growing into maturity and resting in all the sufficiency God has for you moment by moment. That's what he means by rest here. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That is the promised land for you. That is the life that will give people the right impression of who God is when you're living that life, it will bring glory to God. It was God's intention for them, and it is God's intention for us. But let's be brutally honest. Many of us are settling for a drab wilderness experience that's far short of the abundant life God desires. Many of us are not growing much. Many of us are not changing much. Many of us look pretty much like we did when we left Egypt, if we're just being brutally honest. It's kind of like we're wandering in circles. Now, as a young Christian growing up in the state of Tennessee, way out in the country, I would go, I started preaching at the age of 15, and I would go to all these little churches. All, I mean, I preached constantly as a teenager in churches all over. I, they're just looking for a warm body. Somebody with a pulse qualifies. So I was like, I've, I've got a pulse. I'll go preach. And so they would often, in these circles that I was in, they would have these testimony services. And just impromptu, the pastor would send them and go, oh, somebody stand up and give a testimony for Jesus. And it was great. It was cool. Good thing to do. And people would pop up and tell about how that they were a sinner and finally God broke through and he saved them and they prayed a sinner's prayer and they would often kind of end their testimony by saying, and I'm so glad I prayed that prayer. There's nothing wrong with that testimony. But it began to bug me a little bit after listening to dozens and dozens of these. Like, I began to think, well, that's wonderful. I'm glad you came out of Egypt. What's happening now? I mean, are you growing? Uh, Are you changing in any way? Is anything happening in your life that would indicate that you're actually making progress? Are you practicing spiritual discipline so you can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What I really wanted to say basically is, look, I'm glad you're not on the highway to hell anymore. That is really cool. But isn't there more to your Christian experience than that? That you're not in Egypt anymore? But see, that's the way we often talk. Think of it 
in terms of marriage. According to the Bible, marriage is about leaving and cleaving, right? That's the language it uses. It, and in that day, most people literally lived within their parents' home until they got married. And so you would leave your father and mother's home, you would leave them, and you would cleave to your spouse. That word cleave means an intermingling of your lives in all the right ways as you do life together. You leave and you cleave, you leave and you cleave. Leaving and cleaving is what a great marriage is all about. Now, if you met someone who's gonna get married next Saturday and they said to you, yippee, boy, I'm so excited I'm gonna be leaving home next Saturday. And you kept waiting for a little more. I'm just so pumped that next Saturday I get to leave home. I think you'd think to yourself, dude, you're in for a big shock on Sunday. Because marriage is not just about leaving home, it's about leaving and cleaving. And trust me, the cleaving is just as important as the leaving. If you went to someone's 40th wedding anniversary party, and at the end of this big, raucous party, the, the groom, the guy who's been married 40 years, stands up and says, I want to give a toast, but before I do, let me just give testimony. I'll tell you, I left home 40 years ago, and praise God, I've never been back. I'm so happy. And you would think to yourself, that is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. 40 years of marriage, but not a word about the marriage itself. But that's exactly how so many of us talk about our Christian life. We've come out of Egypt. We're grateful that God delivered us from the bondage to sin. We talk and act as though that's what it's all about. In reality, coming out of Egypt is just the beginning, right, of a rich, vibrant relationship with the one who brought us out in order to take us in to the abundant life. Second declaration, a hardened heart of unbelief and disobedience will always, and I mean always, stifle our progress. Now, we talked a little bit last week about what it means to neglect so great a salvation or to neglect the word of God. And if you recall, I said that rejecting and neglecting basically have the same outcome. Whether we outright reject the word and the gospel message or whether we neglect it, it basically is the same result. It does us no good. It does us no good. And when we don't keep on exercising faith in God and trusting him as we walk with him, it will stifle our progress. You see, faith in God is really this disposition of trust toward God that expects God to work. And as you're on your way from Egypt to the promised land, as God opens up these new doors of obedience and says, look, I want you to do this now. I want you to move into this experience with me. And when we fail to trust him and take that step of obedience in the language of Hebrews, what we're doing is hardening our hearts. And we always end up taking some 
detour, some off-ramp on the throughway, and we end up wandering in the wilderness. Now, we don't have time to read the whole story, but I urge you to read it on your own. The classic example of this in the Israelites' experience was what happened at a place called Kadesh Barnea. Remember that word, Kadesh Barnea. Remember that name. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. After they'd been out of Egypt for two years, the Israelites came to the southern tip of Canaan, a place called Kadesh Barnea, and God told them, now's the time to go in. So Moses selected 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes, to go and spy out the land and bring back a report. That's exactly what they did. Here's basically a report. Wow, what a land. God is right. It sure is flowing with milk and honey. We've never seen grapes that large. It is unbelievable. But the towns there are well fortified. They're powerful. They're large cities. And there's giants in the land. We look so small in our own eyes. There's no way. In fact, the promised land is out of reach for us. That was the report. But two of the spies disagree. Filled with faith and genuine trust in God, Joshua and Caleb says, we can do this because the God who took us out is big enough to bring us in. They remembered what God had said to Moses in Numbers 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving. Note that phrase, I am giving to the Israelites. Now, if you read the book of Joshua carefully, I think you'll find somewhere around 28 times God says, either I gave it to you, I am giving it to you, or I will give it to you. 28 times he talked about giving them the land. If you read the four books preceding Joshua, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I think you'll find about 72 times that God said essentially the same thing. I'm giving you the land. In other words, a hundred times God said about Canaan, I'm giving this to you. I took responsibility to get you out of Buffalo. Trust me here, I'm gonna take responsibility to get you to the Capitol District. Just trust that the one who was big enough to bring you out is certainly trustworthy and powerful enough to take you in. But tragically, they took a vote, and the 10 outvoted the two, and they turned tail and went back into the wilderness and essentially wandered for about 38 more years, all because of hardened hearts of unbelief. Now, as Paul reminded us, these things were written to help us as examples for us, right? So, so let's personalize this. Dear Christian friend, let's get personal here. What I'm saying to you today is that there are some glorious experiences and victories that you and I simply will not receive unless we're willing to believe that the God who brought us out actually has the power to take us in. And I believe that this week, you may have your own Kadesh Barnea moment where God is opening up a whole new thing to you and nudging you to step out in faith. But, but just like them, you will face a decision. Am I gonna shrink back in fear 
Or am I gonna step forward in faith and enter the kind of life, the kind of experience God has for me? One final declaration as we close. The key to experiencing the abundant life of God's rest is to practice wholehearted trust in and obedience to God's word. That's the key. I, I paused when we looked at the scripture earlier because I wanted to emphasize it. Therefore, let us fear. This is chapter four, verse one. Lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Now, you've probably heard that the Bible says, fear not a bunch of times, right? Fear not, 365 times, I'm told. I haven't counted them all. One for each day of the year. So obviously, God generally doesn't want us to be driven by fear. I hope we understand that. But here's one place where God says, now look, look. Listen up, everybody. All you Christians on the way to the promised land here, the life I designed for you right here and now, listen up. There should be some phobos here. That's the Greek word used. There should be some fear. The NIV kind of tones it down a lot and says, let us be careful that we don't fall short of it and miss out on it, you know? That's a little weak because it's the same word used in Philippians 2 when it talks about working out our own salvation with phobos and traumas, fear and trembling. So the point here is not God wants us to be paranoid and I'm walking around in fear all the time. He says, look, you need to really take note. You need to really get some concern here that you fall short of the kind of life God has designed for you. So let me ask you, how is that going for you? Our experience of entering into that life is directly proportionate to how much we trust in him. The more trust, the more rest. The more trust, the more rest. And again, I ask, how is that going for you? We're all in this together. I, I, I'm on this journey with you. We're, we're, not, we're not blaming each other. We're not judging each other. I'm just asking you, how is your journey going? Did you get off at Canajahari somewhere? Are you kind of wandering around in the woods on your spiritual journey? Or are you making progress? I like what verse 11 says of chapter four. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. The NIV, I love the way it puts it. It says, let us make every effort. Are you making every effort? See, God's kind of put the ball in our court, don't you think? He said, look, I've given you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness, but now you make every effort to enter that kind of rest, that kind of life of abundance. All that means is we do our part, God does his. Say, so Pastor Rex, what is our part? Because I sure would like that kind of life. Our part is feasting on the scriptures, taking sustenance. Our part is communing with God in prayer. Our part is fellowshipping with real believers and rich fellowship. Our part is serving and pouring out our life for others and using the gifts God given. Our part is being great 
stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. Those, those kind of things are our part. And when God says, look, I want you to step up to this new level of devotion, commitment, we trust God and we take that step. That's our part. What is God's part? God's part is to handle the results. God's pretty good handling the results. And so here's the final word. I'm convinced that this very week, some of you are poised at your own Kadesh Barnea. And God is saying, I want you to move into this new land, this new realm of living that I am giving you. And here's the only question that remains to be answered. When God opens that door today, tomorrow, this week, and gives you that nudge, are you gonna step forward in faith or are you gonna shrink back in fear? and flounder in the wilderness? That's the question that we have to answer. That's the choice that is yours and mine. God, I thank you that you brought us out to bring us in. And as we are poised this week at our own Kadesh Barnea, whatever that looks like, I thank you that although there are giants in the land, just like there were for your Old Testament people, there are all kinds of stresses and challenges and conundrums that we can't see our way through and people that tick us off and all kinds of problems we have. I thank you, Lord, that you said you would give us the land. Our job is to trust you and to take steps of faith as you prompt us. So help us to do that this week, full of faith like Joshua and Caleb, ready to enter all the abundance that you have for us in Jesus' name, amen and amen.